Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. To this episode, we are speaking with Michael Luciani, founding partner at Exponential Impact Rolling Fund. Exponential Impact is a pre-seed and seed stage fund that backs frontier tech founders developing technologies largely in the field of synthetic biology tech, deep tech, and hard tech startups in order to provide radically effective solutions for the climate crisis. I was excited to speak with Michael, whose varied career path began with his domestic policy work in the White House and then joined the Hillary Clinton 2016 presidential campaign. He then transitioned into the tech sector when he founded Tuesday, a political tech startup for advocacy organization and non-profit which has been backed by well-known tech investors such as Reid Hoffman or Chris Saka prior to being acquired in 2020. Despite not having a background in science, Michael found that he could still make a valuable contribution to the climate tech sector and found that exponential impact and to support companies that have the potential to save the world literally. With Michael's interesting background, I was looking forward to getting his non-scientist view on synthetic biology and its huge potential impact on the economy and the climate tech sector. During the show, Michael gives 
an interesting overview of the synthetic bio landscape and who he sees are the major players, the regulatory challenges and opportunities, and the most exciting symbiotech applications that are currently cooking in the labs. He also shares more about his approach to climate tech funding, how he built expansion impact, how he resources founders, and why he offers then pop 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 stop restarting paragraph restarting paragraph restarting paragraph. With Michael's interesting background, I was looking forward to getting his non-scientist view on synthetic biology and its huge potential impact on the economy and the climate sector. During the show, Michael gives an interesting overview of the synthetic bio landscape and who he sees are the major players, the regulatory challenges and opportunities, and the most exciting synbiotech applications that are currently cooking in the labs. He also shares more about his approach to climate tech funding, how he built exponential impact, how he sourced founders, what he offers to them, and how he measures their potential impact. In the second part of the show, Michael gives his secret sauce for founders looking to pitch to investors and the criteria he uses to base his investment decision, along with a few examples of what works, what doesn't, and the red flags he notices when hearing pitches. Lastly, Michael gives us his main book recommendation for entrepreneurs in the climate tech. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super excited to have you here with us uh, today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with uh, Exponential Impact. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's a lot of fun to be on and I'm excited to talk with you. So before we start, that's a, you know, that's a tradition now, I would say. Could you please give us a 30 second introduction about Exponential Impact Rolling Fund, I can call it. Yeah, yeah. We um, are a pre-seed and seed stage fund that backs frontier tech founders who are working on climate solutions. Um, yeah. That's a good good summary to start with. I'm sure we'll dive deeper. Fantastic! I love it. You uh, you didn't exceed the 30 seconds, and that's uh, that's that's perfect. <laughs> you know how it can work sometimes with uh, with founders, investors. They go on and on. So let's start from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you do besides working on and supporting and investing in founders? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? Uh, as I like to ask, like who is Michael? Yeah, yeah, it, it's that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> well, I live in Washington D.C. Um, and I've lived here really since I graduated from college. Uh, and for me, I had initially wanted to work, you know, in international relations, and then you know got involved in in domestic policy. Uh, a big part of my story actually is that I am sober. So I stopped drinking and, you know, doing drugs like a little more than nine years ago. And still I'm involved with like Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsor people. And so I ended that brought me to actually working um, at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy under President Obama. And I, I loved that experience. Um, and that got me involved with campaigns. I ended up 
working on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. And then afterwards, uh, starting a company called the Tuesday Company. So that was a kind of political tech company that made software for campaigns and um, advocacy organizations, nonprofits. If you've ever, at least in the States, volunteered on a campaign, the, usually the first thing they do is like they give you a clipboard. They're like, hey, can you like go down this list and knock on these people's doors or call them? Um, what we did is we made an app that matched up volunteers' cell phone contacts to that list and said, oh, you know, you know Michael, can you just text Michael rather than sending a random stranger to his house? Um, and, you know, loved that experience. We, we went through an accelerator. We were venture-backed. We were very fortunate and then ended up selling the company um, to Bloomberg Philanthropies in 2020. Uh, and, you know, I think the, the through line in all of this that brings me that brought me to climate and, and climate investing is that it matters a lot to me um, to see a tangible impact in the things that I'm working on. Right. Like I want to be excited to wake up every day and see if I can you know do my part in making the world a little bit better for the people that are in it. And I had always you know, been concerned about climate, but had been hesitant to get involved directly because I wasn't, and I'm still not a scientist. Um, but what I realized after my experience with my company was that there are a lot of really brilliant folks who are working on climate who are scientists and who are not entrepreneurs, right? And, and my experience uh, in that arena can be valuable to those folks. And, and so I started, you know, working with first time founders and, um, investing in early stage climate tech. Uh, and from there, you know, I, I ended up running a series of special purpose vehicles, like these syndicates on AngelList and, uh, being very active and uh, as, as part of a very active syndicate, um, supporting companies at the early stages. And my own kind of research uh, and interests brought me to this frontier tech thesis. And specifically within that, I am most interested in synthetic biology as a solution set. Uh, my co-founder in the fund is a woman named Jenny Khan, who is you know the kind of perfect complement to my skill set. She is a um, PhD in chemistry from Cambridge. And she was the lead protein engineer in Francis Arnold's lab, who went on to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2018. So um, Jenny and I, and we have our, an advisor, Dr. Pam Silver, who's one of the core faculty members at the Harvard Weiss Institute for um, Bioengineering at Harvard. We were lucky to have, you know, both of I'm lucky to work with both of them. <laughs> They're brilliant. Um, and, you know, I think we, we see a huge, huge opportunity set in biotech and frontier tech broadly um, for climate solutions. So that's, that's where we're focusing our time. And uh, we're just incredibly fortunate to get to do this work and to see the amazing things that, that founders are working on right now. 
before we go to uh, too deep into the the fund in itself, uh, I like to you know just step back a little bit and, and understand. I mean, you mentioned that uh, you worked in in politics, and then out of that experience, uh, you know, you created uh, this uh, this platform or app services that uh, was helping like volunteers to uh, to get on board. And you know, the, the, the you are fortunate, as you mentioned as well, uh, to be supported by you know. A tremendous like uh, backers like Reed Hoffman, uh, Chris Saka, which is like uh, very exciting. Then you got acquired, and then you decide to uh, to in a way to 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 launch this fund. But can you like just tell us a bit more about like this whole experience? Like in a way, what gives you an edge to to start the fund and and in a way maybe to support founders as well? I don't know. Like if you can maybe mention one or two experiences that. You recall and say, yeah, indeed, this was very useful to learn that. Maybe I learned it the hard way, uh, but yeah, uh... <laughs> um, absolutely. Like you know, I think raising raising rounds of financing for my company uh, was trial by fire, of course, in learning how those processes work and understanding and. You know, wow, this was a big mistake to do it this way and not that way. Um, I, I think to give a specific example, you know, we, we certainly saw a range of investors that we worked with who had a variety of different um, priorities, right? So some folks wanted to support my company because they were profit motivated others because they were impact motivated. Um, some wanted to be active, some wanted to be passive. And, you know, I think that climate tech has a similar dynamic where there is a component of impact and that can lead to more juggling from the founder perspective as they figure out how to prioritize different inputs and different priorities. Um, and so I, I do think that that is a component to our edge. I think another is just having a hands-on experience building product um, and building a product that's scaled up to, you know, over a million users. And then I think a final, you know, interesting component is uh, the ability to understand, at least in the United States, from a very close perspective, how the political process works, how advocacy works, how kind of movements and, and, um, loyal user bases or activist and volunteer bases are built. Uh, I think all of those things are, are really important, uh, depending on the realm that the company is operating in. And it's something that, you know, you just, you don't know until you know, until you've done it. Right. And I think I've even found on a more nuts and bolts level, we're often working with first time founders. And, and sometimes it feels like to kind of bring it all the way back to, you know, my work uh, in my personal life, like sponsoring people in AA, like sometimes it feels like you're a sponsor, right? It's like, it's going to be okay. Um, you know, we've got, you're, you're here to be a voice of wisdom who's gone through the process. And sure, it seems easy when someone's asking, like, how do I hire? Like, <laughs> what, what should I be looking for? Like, what do you prioritize? You know, and, but having made a bad hire and let someone go and made good hires and seen them really succeed, like, you do have a valuable perspective and you do want to be on the phone with those folks and be as helpful as you can. And um, I think all of that has played into our competitive advantage. Um, and, 
one more component that comes to mind is a lot of investing and a lot of startups, you know, is network based. So when thinking about being an organizer um, and being in the like the business of building political campaigns and movements, you know, organizing a network of founders, a network of investors, um, a network of kind of resources and advisors that can be available to those founders is something that some, I think some firms are really great at and some firms are not. Um, we are still early enough as a firm that it's, you know, time will tell if we're great, uh, but it, we're certainly intentional and we certainly have the ability to think very critically about how to put those pieces together for impact. And we, we think it's um, hopefully going to continue to be a big value add to our founders and, you know, starting out building a track record in, in the world of SPVs and syndicates has let us build that network, I think, really, really well. So let's uh, zoom out now and, and take a step back. And, uh, we like to take this uh, macro approach and, and look at, you know, one of the, the frontier tech that uh, you guys are looking at with uh, exponential impact. I mean, could you give us like an overview of the state of synthetic uh, biology? Um, maybe, you know, you can start for the people who are not familiar with the, with the concept, with a, a small uh, definition of it. Uh, and the, the, the current application that uh, you know, people be without realizing it uh, already have that in their day-to-day -day, uh, day -day life and maybe which industries that, uh, that you have seen so far that are levering, le leveraging synthetic uh, biology uh, the most. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I mean, we are, while we are, one, one thing before I dive into that, like, the majority of our investments are, are in synthetic biology, but we do invest in other kind of hard tech, deep tech climate applications outside of SynBio. Um, SynBio, though, as I hope you know, people who are listening will agree as I go through it, we, we, is one kind of realm that we're most excited about and most expert um, in terms of our advisors and, and Jenny's experience. But the to, to kind of give a big picture definition, Synthetic biology is the design and engineering of biology to create new biological entities. So, you know, we're thinking about DNA, protein, cells, bacteria, everything all the way up to plants and animals. Um, and the reason why we think it's really interesting and exciting is that 60% of the physical inputs to the global economy can be made by biology. And biology uh, is by default, a carbon negative process, right? Like most applications use CO2 and or methane as feedstock. Uh, so rather than, you know, burning fossil fuels uh, for a chemical process to take place or to create the chemical inputs and emitting carbon into the atmosphere, you're actually, you know, sucking carbon out, fixing carbon into um, whatever it is that you're making. And, you know, by default, generally, you're also making something that is biodegradable, right? So, so it's um, using the technology that has developed to be in sync with the resources available and the cycles in place on planet Earth uh, to create the things that we want and need in a sustainable way. And 
you know, when thinking about like 60% of the physical inputs to the global economy can be made by, by, by biology, you're talking about, you know, 20 to $30 trillion of total addressable market. So we, we find that to be a, a really uh, attractive space to be investing in. For ex in terms of examples, oh, sorry, did you want to ask a question? I'm sorry. No, I just wanted to uh, ask, I mean, according to you, like in terms of like, uh, who are the, the, the leaders uh, today in the in the US, North America, and, and maybe the rest of the world, if you have, uh, you know, some, some opinion on that, but in terms of uh, R&D, in terms of like uh, commercialization, I mean, like, uh, who are the, the one that uh, you guys get maybe your, most of your deal flows, or you see that uh, the most exciting uh, things are happening right now? Well, there's a couple of different verticals and the state of the industry is different within those verticals so from the perspective of most people who are listening they may have seen the impossible burger right and so alternative foods is usually the first thing that people think of when they think of synthetic biology we've recently invested in like a molecular coffee um molecular chocolate so this is like plant-based cellular agriculture growing those things in a in a lab um but alternative foods even within alternative foods like the process for creating um meat in a animal less way is very different than the process for creating um plant products in an animal less way and you, know, you can go down the list outside of food in these different verticals. Uh, a lot of plastic com plastics can be created in a biological process or plastic alternatives, industrial chemicals and foods. Uh, I'm sorry, industrial chemicals and fuels can be made from biomass instead of fossil fuels. Uh, and then, you know, there are also abilities to kind of genetically engineer existing plants and crops, which we, we already do. Um, so to create crops that are highly, higher yielding or more resilient can also have bio-based and bio-made fertilizers instead of chemical uh, fertilizers, which are better for people's health and hopefully more effective. Uh, so, so there's a lot there. I think from a public company perspective, like Ginkgo Bioworks, um, does a great job and is, is certainly a leader in the space um, and, and, and actually has a great program where they are working with a lot of early stage companies and supporting their growth. Uh, and yeah, I think that the current state of affairs for biology is and biotech and synthetic biology is there, there's not a ton of like big public market successes yet uh, because it's relatively early right like if you think back you may remember headlines in the 1990s about the human genome project and it was like this hundred million dollar like multi-country moonshot and they were going to like sequence the human genome and they did and now you know you can pay 20 bucks and like send in your spit to 23andme and get your ancestors so we've, in a very short amount of time, gone from this being like a hundred million dollar moonshot to like, you know, a consumer product that everybody participates in. And, you know, between DNA sequencing 
the commodification of CRISPR and Cas9, like DNA editing technology, and then the more and more powerful ability to do put all these pieces together in computer models that are accurate has meant that now for the first time a startup can take less than a million dollars and make a minimum viable product and take something to market and and, um, that has been a process that has in the past been a 10 million dollar or 100 million dollar proposition so you know for us we see this period of democratization coming into play with the giant market and the market accelerating force of climate pressure. And we say that's a really great place to be investing. So, um, you know, hopefully that's helpful in terms of examples. Uh, definitely. So when, when you look at like, I mean, what you've seen, uh, you know, companies, scientists uh, coming to, to pitch you, like, I mean, what are the, the breakthrough applications that uh, they are, you know, looking at uh, and are working on today and that you are the most excited about? Like, I mean, what's cooking in the labs? Give us some uh, some insights. <laughs> you know, there, there's a ton of cool applications. So, you know, I think that recently we've, as I mentioned, made some investments in plant-based cellular agriculture. So, so um, coffee and chocolate, for example, which are very carbon intensive foods being made in the lab. Uh, there's a lot of companies working on alternative meat. Meat is much more difficult to produce at scale than um, plant cellular agriculture. And so we've made some platform technology investments in the, in the, Kind of meat space where we're looking at you know modular bioreactors and um, software for kind of optimizing the precision fermentation process which is a process that's commonly used to grow a lot of these things um, we also have made investments in companies that are modifying microbes to consume co2 and methane and produce industrial chemicals, right? And so carbon negative process to replace with a cheaper um, and more scalable alternative, otherwise very dirty industrial chemicals. I think, you know, some further out applications that are really fun and interesting that people don't think of as much is we have recently made more than one investment in um, carbon negative materials. So, biomanufacturing clothing and shoes um, in a way that we think is is really really interesting and you know plausibly could cr- help create the cheap t-shirt at Walmart cheaper but also in a way that is significantly less damaging to our planet and is you know biodegradable and recyclable um, and then I think that even kind of more interesting there are up and coming applications around bio uh, plastic degradation. So not only creating like a biology based biodegradable plastic alternative, but also engineering microbes to break down plastics that would otherwise sit in a um, landfill for 10,000 years. We have even been excited about um, 
something called phyto mining, which I, I had not known existed, but there are actually plants that are hyper accumulators of metal. So there's one that uh, hyper accumulates nickel because nickel is a, is poisonous and it's a defense mechanism and they can be engineered to <laughs> hyper, hyper accumulate. Um, and you can take these plants and you can, you can plant them on a shale deposit that might have half a percent of nickel. So, you know, it's too little to be worth mining, or perhaps you can't mine in that area for whatever reason. Uh, and you can let the plants grow and you can harvest the plants and actually get a very appreciable amount of nickel in a very, very profitable way. And that biomass is also, is fixing carbon, right? And like you can um, sequester that and, and have a carbon negative mining process for a very valuable battery metal. So, you know, there's, when you're talking about 60% of the physical inputs to the global economy being possible to be made by biology, like there's a lot of examples, but um, those are some of the stuff that we've seen recently and that we've invested in recently and, and um, that we're excited about. But th thanks so, so much for, for sharing. And it sounds that, uh, you know, there's so many uh, interesting stuff uh, and definitely with like high impact on, uh, you know, on climate and climate, uh, climate change and, really like rethinking the way how we uh, how we do things today uh, thanks to using this uh, those living organism and the way how we manipulate them but don't you feel that don't you see that any risk of like what i call uh, quote unquote uh, frankensteinization of the uh, of the living organism uh, you know what are the risks and regulation in place to, to prevent this and are they also like in a way blocking or should they be changed in a way to to see the uh, you know synthetic biology application that sounds very exciting as you mentioned to go mainstream and really fully contribute to the uh, to the uh, you know climate uh, change problem that you are all facing. Yeah, um, I think that that is a really really good question. So you know the premier application, or uh, I don't know if I want to say premier, but the application that has thus far gotten furthest in terms of market traction is, is alternative foods. And food is a highly regulated space, right? Like there are a lot of approvals in place to make sure that what you're eating is, is guaranteed to be healthy and, and good for you. Um, and actually, you know, kind of having learned more about the space, being able to create food with a biological process is generally resulting in healthier food products than creating food in an industrial or a chemical process, which depending on what you're eating, like um, is currently the case. And so, you know, I think that in the food space, we have a lot of regulations in space or uh, in place in the manufacturing space, like for industrial products, the trick right now is taking processes that are relatively finicky and getting them to, um, you know, be stable at scale so that you can create, you know, industrial chemicals or uh, biomanufactured fabrics or, or whatever it might be uh, at, without kind of your process breaking. So we're still a long way from like a Frankenstein scenario where you have out of control um, organisms, you know, maybe in the future, there will be synthetic 
organisms, but right now we're, we're mostly talking about like synthetic, like engineered cell cultures or microbes that are um, less adapted to the natural world than, you know, the actual things you would find in the natural world um, because they're highly specialized at doing this one thing and they, um, you know, would, would quickly kind of perish outside of their fermentation container. So I think today we are, you know, we're not at risk of any sort of out of control, like, you know, danger. I do think that, you know, I, I do think that from a policy perspective, there's a balance, right? Because there are federal subsidies, for example, for like the chemical industry that make it difficult for synthetic biology created products and processes to compete. Um, and that should change, right? And that should, that should, those incentives should move towards these more sustainable processes. But I also think on the flip side, like biology is something that is inherently tied to morality. And as you learn to read, you know, the, and edit genetic code, um, and right now we're not necessarily good enough at that for people to be considering, you know, this in kind of parenting decisions or uh, childbirth. But, but I, I would guess we might start to think about that and, and, and um, you know, think about policy for that, for kind of synthetic biology being done on humans um, in our lifetime. And that's going to be a really, really challenging policy debate. I mean, I think recently there was um, a heritable disease that was cured in, an, in a, an adult with genetic engineering. And they literally changed someone's genetic code um, and cured them of a previously incurable disease. So we're, we're already finding that you know, we, can, we can do these things um, at scale and uh, in humans. For me, that is a little bit outside of our scope, right? Like yeah. what we have found in part of our thesis for exponential impact is that there's actually a lot of investors who are very knowledgeable in the world of biotech and who have funds, um, but they are often, most often, only investing in therapeutical in therapeutics, right? So they're they're investing in chemicals that are, you know, used in the process of new drug discovery. They're investing in you know, new uh, processes for human health and new therapeutic approaches to cure disease. And so for us, we see on the climate side, a lot of climate investors don't have the um, expertise and the technical know-how to feel comfortable investing in synthetic biology. And, you know, the bio investors are only investing in medicine. And so we, we saw a gap, right? And we said, great, you know, we think that there's a huge market for uh, climate solutions coming out of synthetic biology and not a lot of people who are equipped to support that, especially at the early stages, we're going to, we're going to fill that gap. We're excited to be there. Um, I think that the folks that are really going to have to grapple with the morality are, are the, the therapeutics people, right? Like the folks that are actually, you know, trying to use synthetic biology to create, drugs for humans or cure diseases in humans, I think are going to run up against um, 
those big questions more quickly than the climate uh, solutions applications. Thank you so much. So let, let, let's go probably, and I think this is a good segue to go to uh, you know more specifics into uh, uh, exponential impact. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, with exponential impact, what are the uh, you know um, support that you offer to the, the founders that uh, you invest in? Uh, what are the challenges that you see that, uh, that are specific to, to them at the stage that you invest in? And how do you, uh, in a way, close that gap to, uh, to support that, them as much as possible? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that when we're talking with founders at the early stages, you know, they're usually is one founder who is very technical, right? Who, who's the expert in this process. And they're saying, great, you know, I know how to do X. I, I want to build a company around that. You know, I want, I know how to you know, switch on and off microbes to get the correct amount of nitrogen in the soil around, you know, plants. And this is going to be critical for feeding the world. And I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I think that team building is a big one. Um, because, you know, as synthetic biology democratizes, uh, the barriers of entry are lower and more people are, are trying to experiment with different solutions. And a lot of technical folks are coming out of academia and they're trying to figure out how to be entrepreneurs. Uh, so having a co-founder who has that experience or a co-founder who has experience you know, selling into the industry that the company is hoping to sell into can be a really, really important differentiator. Um, you know, another big thing that we look for is incrementalism. So, you know, I think that deep tech and hardware and biology, um, you know, the classic kind of caveat or fear for investors is that this is a science project and that you're going to put in money and the company is going to raise money again. And there's going to be rounds of like, years of, of putting in money into like a black hole. And then at the end of the science project, there may or may not be something viable. Um, what we look for and what we, what we insist upon in the investments we make are companies that, you know, have a product in market today or after you know one round of funding will have a product that's in market and that product might not be the entire you know realization of the founder's vision but we want them to be able to be getting feedback from the market to be able to learn how to sell to be able to be generating revenue and be default alive and then be building the next increment um so that 10 years out, you know, they are, they have achieved the vision that they're hoping for in a way that, you know, de-risks the proposition in each step. Um, and we think that that is really, really important and, and very possible. Uh, and then the final thing that we are starting to do that we really love is like, practice uh, board meetings. So, you know, working with a lot of first-time founders, um, we are having them, you know, put together practice quarterly board meetings with us and helping teach them how to do that, helping to, you know, have that be a low stress, low stakes time for us to get an update on the company and help, you know, make strategic recommendations 
but we've also seen that it's a real differentiator because um, as they go out to Series A investors, you know, they're able to say, hey, I might be a first-time entrepreneur, but like we run a very professional operation and you can see you know, from our data room uh, the history of kind of our board meetings and our quarterly updates and our strategic reviews and, and the pivots we've made because of those. And it's, I think, a great way to help the founder build confidence and also to help the company to really grow and level up. Um, so and those are some of the things that come to mind. I think one last one that's important for me to mention, even though it's something that my partner Jenny leads rather than me is, you know, Jenny and, and the advisors that we've put together are deeply connected in the world of kind of biotechnology. And so we have relationships with, um, you know, everyone from IP professionals to corporations that are often, you know, interested in being the buyers of the products that our portfolio companies are creating. And so we can help make those connections, help those companies to get, you know, LOIs and in place. And we have seen that that's super helpful, right? Because otherwise those can be very difficult markets to break into. So thank you so much for clarifying uh, all of uh, all of this. So according to you, which sectors, and you already like covered that a little bit in the specifically to synthetic biology, maybe if you zoom out a little bit more in um, frontier tech in itself, which one are the most promising for you today in terms of uh, what I call impact cash return or ICR, I mean, meaning like building impactful companies while creating highly profitable business? Do you see any underdog subsectors area that you are the most uh, excited about and that could be interesting for you know other investors uh, lps or maybe founders who are developing something in that uh, in that area yeah you know i think i i think that folks who are in the climate tech investing space are probably relatively familiar with biofuels and with kind of alternative proteins and food things that we are excited about that we think have gotten less uh, attention and you know subsequently are probably underinvested in and have very attractive companies working at very attractive valuations are uh, biochemicals industrial biotechnology and biomaterials um, and so i you know we have certainly seen that companies in those sectors fall in this gap that uh, you and I discussed before, where it's like climate investors in particular here, industrial biotechnology, and, you know, often feel like they're not technical enough to be co confident in making a bet on that space. But, you know, I think that there's certainly um, really high ROI in, in those those subsections. Um, and, you know, we hope to be able to partner with folks that want to get smart and, and help them do that and to co-invest together. So um, we're excited about, about those three. So out of all the, the pitches, uh, I mean, company pitching you, you heard so far, in your opinion, which are the, the solution that you believe makes no sense whatsoever uh, and sound like, you know, they might be a waste of time and, and, and resource or even greenwashing? Do you have a, maybe a couple of examples of like, you're like, okay, no, no go. No need to yeah, name I, them. I, th <laughs> I think that 
two things come to mind. Um, you know, one is that there's a lot of companies working on, uh, as I said, like alternative animal protein. So it's not that it's greenwashing. It's, it's absolutely, you know, I think a critical climate solution and a growing market. It's just that there's, there's un, unsolved problems in terms of how synthetic animal protein is going to be able to scale or if it will be able to scale. And there's also just a lot of people working on it. Um, so, you know, I think we see a lot of those pitches and we are, are highly skeptical of kind of the, what possibly, you know, could be a competitive, competitive differentiation for this, for the nth animal alternative protein. Um, the other thing that we see, and, you know, I, I'm open to being told I'm wrong on this and maybe I am, but the other thing we see a lot of is like companies that are pursuing a carbon credit based monetization strategy. So, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot that can be done with biology to sequester carbon. Um, I think there are interesting applications that were, for example, in kind of collecting and sinking seaweed, right? We're saying like, great, you know, the red tide in Florida is like a, or, or along, you know, Southern coasts um, is a public menace slash nuisance. You know, if we can collect this really fast growing biological material and sink it to the bottom of the ocean, like we can sequester a lot of carbon and, and make the quality of life in the, the regions in which this exists a lot better. Um, and we'll sell the carbon credits and it'll be great. And, and, and honestly, like that is all great. My, I am skeptical of investing in at least any business that has carbon credits as its main monetization strategy, because I think it's still just so unclear how the carbon credit market is going to play out um, from a variety of different angles, both from like the actual like compostability and uh, fungibility of carbon credits and also regulation or lack thereof. So I like to see companies that are, you know, making a profit or a product um, without carbon credits and then, you know, get to be excited if they have the added potential to, you know, add a revenue stream from selling carbon credits. Um, so we, we will see a lot of companies that have that as a revenue model. And thus far, we haven't made an investment. Um, you know, I, 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 again, like, I don't, it's not greenwashing. It's certainly like, I think positive, um, for the environment, for the work that I'm talking about to be done, but I'm, you know, I, I just have a tough time believing it's like a venture fundable model. So we haven't, we haven't gone there yet, but we see a lot of it. So in terms of like impact, how do you guys measure impact? I mean, um, I don't like some fund says, okay. We invest in only in, co in companies that has a potential to remove like one gigaton uh, of uh, greenhouse gas emission by 2050 or stuff like that. So do you guys have a, a, have a threshold and how do you, you know, uh, calculate that? How do you measure that? Do you have any specific process framework? Uh, do you rely maybe on scientists and experts that, you know, part of your advisory uh, network or 
Um, how does it work? Yeah, we we do um, rely on you know our advisory network uh, to help us make those impact calculations. We do want to see you know a plausible gigaton scale in terms of emissions uh, reduction or mitigation. However, you know we we also will invest in um, companies that result in the restoration or repairing of damage done, right? And so we 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 don't want to make the gigaton scale you know, reduction a hard line, and we haven't because we think that there are other important impact from a climate perspective components that are worth investing in. Um, you know, at the, at the bottom line for us, the thing that's really important is that the company makes their impact in like linearly in conjunction with making their revenue. So, you know, if we are often what we're doing is kind of a top-down analysis, right? Where we're saying like, great, you know, if we're looking at industrial bio technology or biochemicals, we might say, what are the total emissions created by the production of this chemical? And, you know, this is a carbon negative pathway, you know, so we're looking at kind of an impact TAM, right, of that total emissions. And then we're making a bet that the company might be able to take some percentage of market share and getting comfortable with what that would mean from a emissions reduction perspective, basically. So what's next for exponential impact? Good question. Um, <laughs> well, right now, you know, we have a rolling fund uh, on AngelList and we're kind of use, working in conjunction with the Climate Capital Syndicate. Um, and, you know, I think that for us, what we're excited about is having a dedicated traditional venture fund. So taking the next step past you know, syndicates and rolling funds um, into a larger pool of capital. So we're, we're in the process of doing that now. And the driving force behind that is it will allow us to lead rounds. Um, and so, you know, there's, when I talk about this gap for synthetic biology in climate solutions from a venture investor perspective, you know, the, the, really the way that we want to be able to fill that gap is to be able to lead rounds at the pre-seed and seed stages. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where we're moving and we'll see if we can raise a fund in a scary macroeconomic environment. Um, and, you know, if we have to wait, we're, we're happy to continue with the structure we have, which allows us to follow on invest. And often when we find companies that we're in, excited about, we'll go out right now and help them find those lead investors. Um, so we're, you know, we're in a, a spot where we can do that. And we're very fortunate to be in that spot and, you know, in the process of hopefully taking the next step forward. Good. So last question for this, uh, this part. What's your personal view on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, as I always ask, are we doomed? Uh, what would you say to, to people <laughs> to demoralize? You know, you see all of those terrible news like uh, wildfire, flood, tornadoes, hurricane, you name it. I mean, what would you say to them? 
You know, I think that we, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and, you know, I'm, I am sure that you talk with folks that are more expert than I am, but it seems to me there's a certain amount that's baked in, right? And, and like, we haven't yet seen the outcomes of those greenhouse gases fully, you know, kind of coming to fruition in terms of their impact on rising temperatures. However, I, I am... I am really helpful. Um, I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't. It's pretty darn cool to talk with people who are passionate about building solutions every day. And I believe that you know, there are ways for us to create a better society, one where we have everything that we have now, but that these resources are available to more and more people across the world uh, and are, you know, are available in a way that is inherently sustainable, um, that is carbon negative or neutral. And, you know, I, I hope that we will get there in our lifetimes, but I don't, I think that, you know, in between here and there, we will continue to see more extreme weather, more rising seed levels, um, more food shortages. And so I, I, you know, I, I hope that we're able to avoid the worst of those things. And uh, I, I'm happy that we are starting to be on a better trajectory. And, you know, we got to just keep pushing the ball forward, I guess. Definitely. I mean, there's no uh, no way around it. That's, uh, that's the only thing for sure. So, <laughs> how can the, yeah. the community of, uh, you know, LPs, founders, and, uh, you know, experts listening to the, the show today can, uh, can help you? Well, you know, my, uh, my email is michael at exponentialimpact.xyz. Exponentialimpact.xyz is our website. Um, if, you know, if anybody listening is interested in any component of our work, uh, I'd love to talk with them, right? We are a young fund in the early stages of our operation. And so the more people that we can talk to, the better. You know, whether they're advisors or founders or interested LPs, like um, we are intentionally growing our network, as I mentioned. And so I, I um, would be would love to hear from anybody listening that wants to chat. So any question that I should have asked you and I did not for this first part of the interview? No, I, I don't think so. I think I think we're, we did a pretty good job. You 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 really liked deeply thought about it, so I like it. Was it just no no? <laughs> get out of it. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much, Michael, for for your time, your uh, incredible insights, all the hard work that you uh, that you put uh, into uh, contributing to solve this uh, this you know uh, crisis. Uh, so thank you so much. Very exciting to see so many you know brilliant people like you. Uh, jumping into the fight and uh, from politics to uh, synthetic biology and uh, supporting companies uh, <laughs> fighting climate change. So congrats. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really been a ton of fun chatting. So I, I really appreciate you having me on the show.
Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupdscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.